All right, so hello everyone and welcome to the AI Stories podcast. I'm Neil Leiser, I'm a data scientist at IWOCA, and I will be your host. So today, our guest is Neil Latia. He first studied computer science at University College London, and then did a PhD there in recommender system. He worked in academia for a while, had other experiences, but then at some point, he decides to work as a freelance data scientist. He works there for four years and then joins Skyscanner. Stayed there for about two years and finally joins Monzo, a UK digital bank, which is now valued at around $4.5 billion, where he's currently the Associate Director of Machine Learning. So hi, Neil. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. How are you? Hi, hi, Neil. Thanks, thanks for having me. Always good to chat to another Neil. Although we're different spelling Neils, but uh, good to, to have two Neils nonetheless. Yeah, good to speak with you. Not every day that I get to interview another Neil, so I'm sure the yeah. conversation will be interesting. Yep, 100%. So first of all, I just kind of want to know how did you get into AI? How did you get into the field, essentially? Yeah, uh, so you touched on it a little bit in the introduction. I, I did an undergrad in computer science. And when I finished that, I went to interview for a number of jobs. And I was broadly disappointed in many of them and thought maybe I've made a huge mistake in studying computer science. So I started looking around what other things I could do uh, maybe leave the field altogether. But I got back in touch with some of the professors at UCL. And at the time, they were recruiting for PhD students. So I wasn't sure about that. And I uh, decided I'd go for a coffee with one of the current PhD students there, Daniela Cuercha, who's now leading up research at Nokia Bell Labs. And I, I found what he was doing really interesting. And so I decided to have a go at it myself. And when I started my PhD, there wasn't a, a predefined topic or area. So I just started reading very, very widely across the research fields in computer science. But one of the things I was doing all the time was listening to music while I was reading. And at the time, Last.fm was very popular in the UK. And that got me interested in how that technology works. And curiously, around the same time, Netflix announced that they were going to do their million dollar Netflix prize competition and they were releasing a huge data set for that too. So that sparked my curiosity as well. And broadly that's sort of where my my journey into the field began because researching recommender systems is a really nice gentle way to get into machine learning while also being grounded in how these systems work, a variety of different ways to get them to work and the challenges to get them to work well. So you started essentially with recommender systems. That's how you got into AI. Can you maybe explain a bit more what those systems are doing? How does it work? I guess at the time it was quite different to what the systems are now. But yeah, how do they work? What was your research oh, yeah. about essentially? Yeah, I, I am. So, so I finished my PhD in 2010. So uh 11 years ago. So I'm not up to date with how these systems work today. At the time, the main problem that recommender systems were trying to solve for is predicting what sort of content in a data set you would be interested in as a consumer. And the way they would frame that into a machine learning problem is to try and predict what rating you would give to a film or whether you would like a piece of content or not. And so what Netflix did was they released this data set of the ratings that different customers gave to different films. And then they turned it into a prediction problem of who could predict those ratings with the highest accuracy. So clearly there's some problems already there. And I know Netflix have moved way beyond that approach over the last decade. I don't think you can rate Netflix films anymore, but... Broadly, that was one of the interesting entry points for my research, which is that I was looking at the gap between the academic research in this field, which is broadly about making super accurate machine learning models that can predict these ratings 
really well versus the practical application of these systems, which would at the time broadly be about running your model, maybe once a week, once a day, whatever cadence you're comfortable with, and then storing the recommendations for every user and then presenting them to the users when they come along. So my research was looking at how there's a slight different difference between those two environments. And in particular, in research, you do your data set split, train test split, you measure your test metrics and you write your paper and it's all done. But when you run one of these systems, you're gonna run it every day and you're gonna hope that it improves over time. You're gonna hope that the recommendations get better as customers give you more data and so on. And so my research, uh, I think my uh, PhD, in the end, it was something about temporal collaborative filtering. I don't remember the exact title, but it was broadly trying to reframe how academic research should be done on recommender systems in order to factor in the, the fact that these ratings, they come in over time, you retrain the system over time, and all the different things that can go right and wrong with that. So you mentioned the systems keep getting better and better. That's because you get more data on, for example, what users like and don't like, essentially. And so the more data yeah. you get, the more you can make predictions for other users. Is that right? That was That's right, in theory. In practice, <laughs> when I ran these experiments, there was a lot of volatility. So it wasn't just you know, you get N more ratings and your system is X percent better. There were a lot of other factors that, that came into play. One of the factors that I looked at, for example, is how much your recommendations will change if you give the system more data about your preferences. And there were some cases where some algorithms, even if you would give it more ratings, the recommendations they would spit out are exactly the same. And so by a combination of qualitative work and also some algorithmic experiments, I showed that improving the diversity of the recommendations over time is one important thing that you can factor into these systems, which again was sort of broadly missing at the time from uh, the way academics would tackle this problem. Okay. And essentially, so recommender systems made you like your studies and then you decided to continue and move on into the AI field. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It got me hooked and uh, kept me hooked. So after that, you stay in academia for a while. You then have some other experiences, but at some point you decide to work freelance as a data scientist. I think that's interesting because I've never really chatted with anyone who did data science freelance. So can you tell me a bit more about this experience? Like, why do you want to work freelance and how does it work essentially? Yeah, there, there was an overlap between my time in academia and my time doing freelance. So a very practical reason for doing some freelancing work is, is because in academia, you don't earn a lot of money. <laughs> and as a freelancer, I remember that doing probably three or four days of freelance per month, I could already match how much I was earning in academia in the entire month as well. Whoa. That's one reason. Yeah, yeah, that was one reason at the time. So let, I'll just be honest about that. that yeah, that, that's a fair reason. Yeah. And I, I think the second reason is that I was meeting a lot of people who are working on, on different problems outside of academia. And I was interested in what could I learn from them and what could I contribute to the work that they're doing. In academia, you're always sort of N steps removed from mm -hmm. actual real systems that are being built. And so getting one or two steps closer to that was something that fascinated me. And I think then I carried on down that path of getting closer and closer and closer to production systems. So the way I set it up, I made a simple website and I got in touch with a variety of people who I had met at meetups, through research collaborations, people who I had met who had previously left academia. And I found a few projects where they needed a, a data scientist and jumped into those. So usually I think the, the way I heard freelancing described is it's you spend 50% of your time doing the work, 
50% of your time chasing the invoices and 50% of your time finding your next bit of work. So, so there's a lot of time commitment involved in freelancing and, and not all of it is just doing the data science. Yeah, it makes me think of managing a startup because you need to find your clients. You need to, as you mentioned, get your invoice page. So you need to find your projects. You need to sell your product. In this case, you your yeah. skills are kind of the product. How, how do you find those clients? You mentioned you had a network. Is that how you, you found your clients? That was the main way for me. The thing that helped in all likelihood is also um, thinking about getting your name out there a little bit. And the way to do that is by speaking at meetups, at conferences, and also writing. So I, I started blogging when I started my PhD and, and I picked this up as, as a habit that I've broadly dipped in and out of over, over the years. But someone I know framed it as like thinking in public and and it's a, a really good way for then people to be able to see your your skills and the range of projects that you've worked on and also increasingly so for me when i blog people reach out to me to want to talk to me so getting your name out there is is probably one of the best things you can do alongside reaching into your your network would would this be the same advice for someone who is not freelance like i feel at the moment Getting your name out there on LinkedIn or speaking at meetups will just help you grow. I feel that's how it works now. If someone doesn't know you, they are less likely to hire you. If they've seen you already somewhere, they are more likely yeah. to hire you. That works as a freelance, but also just in industry. I think that's an interesting point because I try, as a hiring manager now at Monzo, I, I try to remove as much bias as I can. And so if someone has a very prolific online presence, I, I, I don't go hunting into it as much as I could, because then I would disadvantage applicants who don't have that. But having said that, this whole practice of thinking in public, of writing, of giving presentations, all of the skills you would pick up there would be good for you inside of a company as well. Because inside of a company, especially a medium to large one, you will be spending time writing. You will be spending time giving presentations and talking to people and convincing them of your ideas. So it's a good, it's good practice. Okay. Yeah, thanks. That's interesting because I started obviously also online presence and I can see that you get much more messages on LinkedIn or whatever compared to before, which is, at some point, it makes sense, but it also doesn't make sense because you don't really show any skills. You just write or show that you're interested in the field, but it looks like showing that you're interested and showing that you're here makes people want you. Not sure why. Yeah. But... yeah. My, my rule of thumb for, for blogging is if I have a, the same or similar conversation with three people, then probably there's a blog post there in that idea, in that conversation. So in terms of explaining things to people, in terms of work that I've done or that my team has done, if I find myself talking to many people about it, usually I think, oh, okay, maybe I should write something here too. Okay. So going back to the freelance bit, can you just give a few examples of projects that you've worked on? Yeah, just interested to see the range of projects that you did. Are there like small things or bigger projects without going too much into the details? What did you do essentially? Yeah, I'll give you two examples. They're quite different from one another. So the first one, there was a, a design agency. Uh, they're called Near Future Labs. And I know Fabien who works there. And he was working with a bank in Spain. And he was running a lot of exploratory design work, particularly focused on what sort of products could be built with the, the amazing data that they have about their customers. And I came on board to run some of these analyses with the data that they had as very sort of one-off small pieces of, of analytics. But then they also developed a prototype recommender system where the idea was, and it's still there on their, their website. I think the app itself was called something like Lateral, L-A-T-R-L. And the idea was that 
as a customer of the bank, you could open up this app when you're walking around town and tell it what sort of things you're looking for. Like I'm looking for coffee shops that are like my favorite coffee shops and using the transactional data of the customers, it would find interesting coffee shops in your area. So they were doing a lot of the design and the front end and the mobile app itself and getting this prototype built up. And my role was to come in and, and figure out how would how would we turn transactional data into venue recommendations. Okay, so still like recommender systems related to what yeah. you did in academia. Yeah, this one was quite different because the data was quite different and because at the time, location-based recommendations weren't such a big thing. So probably it was like the earlier days of Foursquare and similar apps. So there, there wasn't like an immediate transfer of the approaches that we would use for academic data sets from Netflix and stuff like that. But broadly, it was about like using a combination of heuristics. I think I was using matrix factorization at like the city level to come up with these prototype recommendations. So if I understand well, your goal was to understand the behavior of some customer, understanding what they liked, what they didn't like, and then essentially finding new places that they would like. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the, one of the key challenges across all recommender systems is a popularity bias. And this means that no matter how much data you give to your recommender, it's always recommending to you the most popular things. And this was definitely, from what I remember, a problem in this because transactions don't just have the interesting places that you've been to. They have the places that you go to all the time, right? Your supermarkets, you know, public transport and all these sort of things that you do the most frequently with your card, but are probably the least interesting things. And is there a difference between solving the problem in academia and solving the problem for a company? I guess it should be quite a different problem. What did you find were the most challenge? Well, the most challenging things when you worked as a freelance that you didn't think about when you were in academia? Yeah. So as a freelancer, it's nearly like a middle ground between, in this case, being an academic researcher and then where I am now, because I did the, the prototyping, I did, you know, munging some, some data sets that they shared with me, figuring out what this thing should look like. But then as a freelancer, my role sort of ended there and I would hand, hand this off to, to the team and for them to decide whether to progress with it further or not. So that, that's kind of like an interesting thing of being a freelancer is that you don't own the entire life cycle of the work that you do. You come in, you have sort of a specific remit of things that they want you to do. You do them and then you don't even see what happens after you, you've gone. So in this case, I, I kind of followed along by looking out to see whether there were any press releases about this. I saw that Near Future Labs wrote up a little bit about it, but I don't think this app was was ever fully launched to the public. Okay, so you're not like deploying the model in productions or things like that. You just show them a proof of concept or something that works and then they decide what they want to do. Yeah, yeah. And the second project that I did is had a similar shape in, in like that, but it was very different context. So I was contacted by a small startup in the UK. It was so many years ago that I don't even know if they exist anymore. And I haven't been in touch with them for a long time. And they were in the health tech field. And one of the problems that they were looking into was children who wet the bed at nighttime. And they were wondering, would it be possible for us to detect this before it happens. I think that the medical insight here was that children who are about to wet the bed are, are going to wake up slightly, but not fully. And so maybe they'll, they'll move a little bit in their bed and all of this movement could be picked up by sensors. So what that company had done was they, they had recruited a bunch of families, they had put sensors under the beds of the kids, 
And whenever the kids wet the bed, the, the, the parents were annotating it, you know, trying to figure out more or less the time when it was happening. And all of this data was, was passed over to me as a freelancer and to say, is this something that we could apply machine learning to? And so very different. It's not a recommender system anymore. It's also very different data. It was accelerometer sensors that are basically detecting small movements in, in the mattress. And these kind of labels, which was the parents mm -hmm. uh, sort of saying, yep, it happened. And, and it, again, I, my role here was to come up with a proof of concept of could this be predictable given the data that they had collected. So is it when babies are sleeping, falling asleep? Yeah, so the idea was that if you could detect the difference between sort of natural movement in bed, like they're rolling over versus the sort of movements that they may do before wetting themselves, that then perhaps you could build some sort of products on that that would maybe say nudge the child to to wake up right so mm -hmm. this is a the, the type of thing that a false positive here would be highly highly intrusive right mm -hmm. if you're just waking a child up in the middle of the night for no reason but before reaching that stage the, the biggest question was is this predictable at all in this case i was trying to predict the outcome being that the when those parents had reported that the child had wet themselves associating that with the movement that had happened before they wet themselves and then oh, okay. using the beginning of that movement to predict to say this movement that has just started looks like the type of movement that would happen before you wet yourself okay and and therefore maybe we should i don't know whatever do whatever with it tell the parent not to the child or whatever it is right so what was the outcome then of your research did you manage to predict something or was this too difficult for AI to tackle? So this one was from a modeling perspective. I think I ended up using like random forest classifiers straight out of the box, maybe doing a little bit of optimization on them. The biggest part of the work was on processing the accelerometer data into features and It just so happened that at the time in academia, I was working on a very similar project where I was extracting features from sensor data. And so the approaches that I was exploring there, I was able to reuse and apply in this environment. And I gave a talk at Pi Data 2016 in London about this, and I open sourced this stuff on my GitHub. So... Um, Really, what it boiled down to was taking these three time series from an accelerometer, so X, Y, and Z, processing them all into various types of features that indicate movement and magnitude of movement and frequency of movement, and then associating them with this label that we had and, and throwing them all into random forest classifier. I don't remember how well it worked. I remember it was promising. I remember that the company was going to use those results to, to further their product development and maybe seek more funding. But, um, you know, again, my role as a freelancer ended there. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. So you, you proved that it could work, it could be interesting, and then you send the project or the algorithm to them and they decide what they do next. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's probably the hardest bit about being a freelancer is uh, you're not sort of fully part of the process. And, and I think that's probably what I enjoy the most in, in terms of my, my role now at Monzo, for example. So one last question, maybe more general about freelance before we actually move to talking about Monzo. Do you feel you can learn as much in freelance compared to industry? Because in industry, you have a lot of feedback. Your supervisor or people higher up are going to tell you, you should do this like this, learn this, do that. This is good, but you can improve it. As a freelance, I feel this feedback is maybe more complex. Obviously, you can have a bit of feedback from your client, but maybe not as much. So do you feel that you learn more in industry compared to freelance? Or what do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. I think 
as a freelancer, I got exposed to a wide variety of problems that I would have never even entertained had I just been at one company. And I definitely learned more on the bit that you were touching earlier in terms of managing myself and my time and invoices and all of that stuff. But you're right. I think as a freelancer, you would need to find a way to have a really long-standing engagement with a client in order to, to really go in very deep and learn a lot from that client and their customers. And that would beg the obvious question, which is, if you're going to have a really, really long-standing engagement with a client, like why can't they just hire you outright instead of uh, mm-hmm. instead of having you as a freelancer? So, yeah, yeah, they're very, very different, definitely. So you think freelance, you learn more about managing yourself, but industry, you might be learning more about data science and machine learning because you do you tackle the project from A to Z essentially, and you get more feedback. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, that's right. I now want to focus the next part of the conversation on Monzo. You've been there for a few years already. My first question is, first of all, can you just describe what's Monzo? What is the company doing? How is this different from a traditional bank? I'm not sure if all our listeners are familiar with Monzo. Not everyone is from the UK. So just a quick intro. Sure. So Monzo is a bank and it was founded probably six, seven years ago now. And it's a it's different from a traditional bank because we are an app only bank. And so you can't sort of walk into a, a branch and and do your business there. All of the business that you would do happens via the app on, on your phone. And that ranges from managing your money, making payments, uh, loans and overdrafts through to getting in touch with customer support. So I have been at Monzo, well, in in a couple months, I'll hit my four-year anniversary. But broadly, you can place Monzo into the wave of fintech banks that emerged uh, a few years ago. Starling is another one in the UK, Nubank in Brazil, and and so forth. And so you are now the associate director in machine learning. So can you describe a bit what you're doing there? What does this job title mean? Are you, I guess you're kind of in the managing side of things, but yeah, that's a that's a this is maybe the hardest question that you <laughs> gave me because I was thinking I don't even know myself. Um, <laughs> so when I joined Monzo. Uh, nearly four years ago, I joined as a senior data scientist. And the entire data team was, I I was the fifth data scientist. So we could fit the entire data team around a a table Mm -hmm. and and, uh, talk about what needed to be done. And so back then with such a small data team, everyone had to do everything. So if there was some product analytics that needed to be done, you would do product analytics. If our airflow was messing up for some reason you had to fix airflow one time i i happened to walk into the office and i was the first data scientist to come in that morning and we had received a regulatory request for data so i did some regulatory data prep and over time so back then monzo was celebrating having about half a million customers And fast forward to today, we have more than 5 million uh, in the UK and all of data science in the company is, it's more than 50 or 60 people. And now there are six machine learning scientists who all report into me. So my journey has been going from a very generic role, um, although I knew that my my heart was set on like building machine learning systems, but broadly doing whatever needed to be done when I started, and then shaping this path for myself, whereby I we have we started out with a, a few people working on machine learning part time, and then we had 
two people working on machine learning full-time, and then we slowly grew up the team. So as an associate director for machine learning, I think I can summarize my role as uh, doing whatever it takes to make sure that machine learning is useful and impactful at Monzo. Okay, no, that's quite clear. And so why the following question related to this, you want to make as much impact with machine learning at Monzo. Do you think that using machine learning gives you a competitive advantage as a bank? Why do you need machine learning in a bank? Yeah, that's a great question. So there are many areas where we don't. And that's part of my job too, is to see those areas as places where we don't need machine learning and to not invest further time in them. But one way you can think about it is if you think about the variety of data that gets produced by running a bank. So we have customers transacting and sending payments to each other. And there are some risky things that can happen there, like fraud. We have customers who talk to us via the customer support function in the app. And there's a ton of text data that gets generated there. And the entire operations of the bank functions by automating everything that is suitable for automation. But there are many things that still get done manually. So when, when you get in touch with customer support, you're, go you're going to speak to a customer support agent. So this is where this combination of automation, humans doing their jobs, and plenty of data brings about the opportunities for, for machine learning. And so over the last few years, we've built several systems that are ranging from search to help customers search for articles in the app, all the way through to systems that are detecting specific types of fraud and uh, triggering interventions before that fraud happens. All right. So essentially, when you have data and there is a process that you want to automate, you evaluate whether you can use AI or not. And if that's impactful enough, or if you think it's worth it, you're going to do this because it's going to save you time and money in the end, I guess. Exactly. Exactly that. Yeah. So you mentioned a few examples here. Can you maybe dive into one particular example, a use case where you actually used AI, an AI algorithm to actually improve the business and have impact on the business? Yeah, sure. The two big areas that my team are currently focused on right now, I just touched on them. So customer operations is one of them. And the other big area is detecting and preventing financial crime. So on the customer operations side, there's, there's a variety of systems in place, but we can think about it from a customer perspective. So you have some kind of problem that you're unsure about. And so you would open the Monzo app and go to the help screen. And the very first thing that you see there is a search bar. It's saying search for your problem. Mm -hmm. And so immediately there, you're, you're putting in your query and that query gets encoded by one of our neural networks and you're getting back articles that are relevant to your query. And hopefully you find what you need. The, the second bit that you would touch in there is as you navigate the articles, you go to the bottom of them, you get recommendations for other articles that you may be interested in. And that is another ML system that you're, you're touching on there. And then eventually, maybe the article that you find says, hey, actually, this is a problem that you should get in touch with us about. And so you click the chat to us button. And there's, there's two different machine learning systems that you will touch into then. Once you write what your problem is, there's one machine learning system that analyzes that and tries to make a sensible decision about what type of agent should be given your question. And that's a combination of, of rules and machine learning. And then once an agent does pick up your, your query, there's a separate ML system that is looking at what you wrote and giving the agent recommendations for how to reply to you initially, at least. And so that would work well if, if you get in touch about a, a simple query that's not too complex. And then 
hopefully everything goes well, we close out the conversation. And then uh, until recently, we would then have a final ML system that would analyze that conversation and look for different indicators out of it that we would then feed into our analytics. So you see, from a customer perspective, it's like a very straightforward thing. I have a problem, I get in touch with customer support, I get my problem resolved and all goes well. But in that journey, you're touching into like three or four different ML systems. Yeah, okay, very, very interesting. So you don't have like a single algorithm that's directly going to give the answer of what the customer is looking for. It's more like a journey. The customer is going to first better understand what his problem is, and then he's going to be sent to the agent to chat with the agent. The agent is also going to receive information to machine learning. And then you have some kind of overall metric, I guess, in the end to see whether this has been successful or not. So we did now probably slightly over two years ago, experiment with a system that would give you a reply automatically. And it would... A chatbot, essentially. It, it was it was a chatbot, but it was only... It was strongly restricted to specific topics. So if you would say, I forgot my pin, that was one of the topics that this, this system would know about. And then the second strong constraint is that the chatbot would only ever give you one answer. And if that was a bad answer, we would bounce you out of the system. And we wouldn't say, oh, I haven't understood. Can you type it again Mm -hmm. using different words for the nth time? And so back then we rolled out that system. We ran several experiments with it. Eventually we, we closed it down less because of its inherent success, but more because one of the things that we were hoping to do is not force customers to reach that chat window in the first place if we knew about the problem that they were having. So I think that's a kind of a critical part of machine learning and product development is, you know, chatbots were super popular a few years ago, but sort of stepping back from it and thinking, is that the right place to be solving this problem? Just because it's technically feasible doesn't mean it's desirable in our product. So one question that I have with this like big machine learning pipeline of like three or four algorithms, as you mentioned, is do you have a way to evaluate the impact in terms of what's your metric? What's the metric that you're using behind this? Because usually in, I know in my company, for example, you either want to maximize revenue or decrease costs. But in your case, it's more some kind of customer success thing. So how do you, What's your metric to define whether your system is successful or not? How do you know that? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, when I'm wearing my manager hat and talking to my team, that's the question I'm asking. (laughs) So if I zoom out at Monzo, it's broadly the same as what you said. We want to cut costs as much as possible without impacting customer experience and increase revenue. And the revenue generating side of the business doesn't have a lot of machine learning yet, but it's stuff like loans, overdrafts, Monzo Flex, which was launched recently, and our business banking accounts and plus and premium accounts. And then the cost saving side of the business is where my team is very active. So for example, preventing fraud and uh, making sure customers have the information that they need, ideally without needing to get in touch with customer support where possible. And if they do need to get in touch with customer support, making sure that their problem gets resolved quickly and to a high standard. So I think one of the things in terms of chopping up these ML systems into multiple systems is that it gives you a possibility to narrow down what it is you're trying to accomplish. So with our search algorithm, It's clearly just trying to optimize for customer finding the information that they need. And one of the success metrics that we can put in place there is looking at the search behavior and at how many customers end up forcing a contact with customer support because the search has failed altogether with them. And then all the way through to the system that gives agents recommendations for how to reply we can have a very tailored metric on 
do they use those recommendations? And when they do, does that enable those conversations to get resolved quicker? So, so yeah, I think if we had sort of one all-encompassing machine learning model, it would probably be much more difficult to, to evaluate. Yeah, because something I'm thinking is, obviously, you want your customers to be able to find the articles that they need. But in the end, why do you want that? Is this because they're going to speak less with customer success and so they will occupy less of the, their time and so customer success can spend their time on more important things and so in the end, you're going to make more money? You see what I mean? Yeah. What's kind of the yeah, overall yeah, yeah. view? I, I think, and this is my personal view, is that an ideal customer experience is that if you have a problem and you go to the help screen and we present the solution to you there already. So for example, a common one being, you know, does my card work in Paris? And so needing, requiring you as a customer to get in touch with customer support and wait for an answer for something that is so effectively trivial would be a failure on our system side. Because if you type in Paris, does my card work in Paris? Then, and you know, I've come up with this example. I haven't checked whether this mm -hmm. search system would actually work for this one. Um, but like, does my card work abroad? You should just be able to type that in and get your answer. It says, yes, it does. And that means that the agents that we have can then spend their time on the harder questions mm -hmm. and on the ones that require a human touch to them. And so if we overwhelm our agents with trivial questions, then they're spending their time saying, yes, your card works abroad and therefore not spending their time with uh, customers who need more investigation, more, more attention, more complex cases. Okay. Yeah, that's perfectly clear. So I now want to move on to the last part, still in Monzo, but more on kind of the career side of things. Obviously you're hmm. managing some data scientists. And as you mentioned, you've been in Monzo for four years now, almost four years, but Within a few years, you quickly became from a senior data scientist to managing a team. So what would be your advice? So why do you think you quickly progressed within this company, essentially? I think there's, there's two sides to this. So the number one side is if you want your career to progress quickly, then join a company that is growing super fast. because That's exactly what happened at Monzo. We went from being a prepaid card with half a million customers all the way to being a fully fledged bank with more than 5 million in, in the time that I've, I've been there. And I remember when we joined, we would sort of celebrate every new 10,000 customers, 50,000 customers. And now that stuff happens every day and it's just business as usual for us. So. Um, Definitely, it accelerated my career because as it, it, when the company is growing so quickly, then the, the size and shape of your role needs to grow very quickly as well. So um, I like to tell people that my, I, I effectively had a new, new job every six months at Monzo because the company had changed and grown so much and grown in terms of what we were doing and how much we needed to do and our ambitions for the other things that we wanted to do. The second side to that is that probably I was not trying to pigeonhole myself in terms of, no, I only want to be doing X. And if I'm not doing X, then, then this isn't the place for me. So although my heart was always set on building and scaling impactful machine learning systems. I knew when I joined that this is a small company. Uh, you could literally know everyone's faces and you just need to do whatever needs to get done. So I think that was the second thing. All the people I've seen around me as well, whose careers have, have uh, accelerated so quickly in that time, it's because they knew about the business They knew that the business was growing very, very, very quickly. And they sort of stayed abreast of all of that as, and, and made sure to, to contribute to that growth as best as they could. So don't focus only on the cool stuff, but just do what needs to get done, as you mentioned. Some yeah. kind of thing yeah. or 
less sexy, I would say, but as important and you need to, to get them done as well. Yeah. And, and the emphasis is on the getting it done because, and this is a particular thing that we, we see in, in data science and machine learning is the, the advice I give to my reports is, is that we're nearly our own worst enemies, right? Because we're, we're training a model, we're doing a piece of analysis, and there's always some, one more thing that we could do or one more thing that we could try or, you know, three more features that I could come up with. Or, and a machine learning model that's, that's pretty good and that's in production is, is impact, whereas a machine learning model that is perfect but just in in a notebook on your laptop is is not impactful at all, right? So um, I think that's kind of the key thing with data and machine learning is if you focus on on getting it done and sometimes compromising on how much you want to do, you still you know ship things and actually create value for your company. So not trying to find the optimum solution that has the maximum accuracy, but trying to find something good enough to be shipped and that does the job. Yeah, exactly that. And the way that I frame it with my team is that ideally, because uh, the first time that you ship a machine learning system, if there's no machine learning in that system, it's going to be it's going to be hard. Right. You're going to maybe have to learn about the existing rules that are in place, learn about the data, learn about where you could integrate your ML model, how it would work, uh, how the final decision of that system would be made and set up the initial dashboards and all that. And so ideally, then the second time that you do it, it takes half the amount of time because you don't have so much context to build up. And then the third time you do it, it takes a bit less time and less time and less time. So um, although as when you're working on a machine learning model, we sort of naturally think about one iteration cycle being going from an idea to a trained and evaluated model. I view an iteration cycle as going from an idea to a shipped model and then repeat and then repeat and then repeat. So a couple sides of that. One is just the cultural side of shipping stuff as as uh, safely and early as we can. And then the second side being using some common technical approaches that can help you increase your confidence that your model is doing what it's what it needs to be doing. So for example, instead of just turning on a machine learning model, using a shadow mode deployment and then using an A-B test and then turning it on and, and having some good monitoring in place. So it, it speeds you up and it gives you confidence that these systems are doing what we hope they do. So now that you're more on the management side of things, what do you think are the skills that you need to have in order to manage all these complex things that you mentioned? What are the skills that you need to have when you manage a team compared to when you're a data scientist? How do you do the mm. step from data science to leading a team? Um, great question. There's a lot to learn. And the way I did it was by observing leaders and managers that I admired and seeing what, what is it that they do and why is it that I admire them. And then equally, when I saw leads or managers who I didn't admire taking notes about why did I, why do I think this is not good? And put together those things give you a picture of what sort of leader you want to be and what sort of manager you want to be. And I think overall, there's some common themes around empathy, around getting to know the people who work in your team closely, and around probably the hardest part is like building a relationship with them that is not purely based on friendship, but it's based on maybe more like being a coach of a sports team or something where you can, you can sometimes have very, very tough conversations, but you know that they're having, they know you're having a tough conversation with them because you want them to score goals and not because you're having a bad day. So it, it it's not, it hasn't been an easy journey for me, um, but it has been super interesting in that you really always have to learn more and 
the best way that I've found is to have one-to-ones with people who are maybe two steps ahead of you in, in, in that journey, you know, that they've been a manager for a year and, and asking them how they started out and what they could have changed, or then talk to people who have been a team lead for a couple of years and see, you know, how did you become a team lead and what were the initial mistakes that you made? So I did a lot of that and, and a lot of gratitude for all my colleagues at, at Monzo who, who helped me along the way uh, there. Well, thanks a lot. That's actually super, super interesting. Um, I'm just going to finish the conversation with one advice. If you had one advice for someone who wants to progress in his or her career, what would it be? For for data science or machine learning or both? Both. You can choose. Uh, curiously, I'd say um, for both, probably, is that the hidden superpower of data scientists and machine learning scientists were really impactful is that they all learned to become really good software engineers <laughs> and it's a bit counterintuitive and sometimes it's a bit painful because you think why do i need to become a better software engineer i want to be a data scientist but it's a superpower and it scares software engineers when they can see us writing code that's as good as theirs and shipping it to production. So um, right now, where we're headed with machine learning is that the ecosystem is democratizing so much that a machine learning scientist who knows how to use the transformers library to fine tune BERT and then ship it into production will have more impact in a company than the data scientist who knows uh, exactly about what like the transformer architecture does and and attention and all of that stuff. So um, if you're excited by shipping machine learning and seeing it impact customers' lives, then then invest in your software engineering skills. Well, thank you so much for this, Neil. It was great to have this conversation with you. Uh, yeah, have a good weekend and hope to see you very soon. Thank you, Neil.